0: Welcome to those of you who are here with us uh, in the room this morning. also want to welcome our online church family as well. Uh, My name is Chris. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm one of the pastors here. And we are now in week two of our brand new fall series called A Good Design, Sex, Love, and Marriage, God's Way. And today I want to talk to you on the subject of love and identity. And so I've asked the band to kind of help set the stage for that subject this morning. You guys, check this out. That's awesome. Listen, I think that song, aside from being one of the most epic songs to jam out to, especially if you're a child of the 90s, you grew up in the 90s like I did, I think that, really, that, that song really kind of encapsulates where we are as a culture. What is love? What is love, right? Think about some of the lyrics that, that our band just sang. I give you my love, but you don't care. What is right, what is wrong? Give me a sign, man. I think that's where a lot of people are. There is so much confusion in our world about what love is, what love is not. In fact, I would wager to bet if I were to take an informal poll of the crowd this morning, our viewers online, and ask you for your definition of love, I would guess there would be literally dozens of different definitions, maybe hundreds of different definitions of what love is. So what is love? Is it a, is it a feeling? Is it merely Uh, sexual. Why why do I say I love filet mignon and I love my wife? Does does that mean the same thing? And I do love both intensely. But is that the same thing? Closely related to love, I'd argue, is our understanding of identity. Because the truth of the matter is, if we don't understand who we are and why we exist, it's going to be impossible for us to truly, fully love somebody or to receive love in a healthy, life-giving way. And I certainly think, If we don't understand identity and love, it's gonna be impossible for us to engage in sex or some kind of meaningful relationship or marriage in a healthy way without the foundation of love and identity. And so that's what we're gonna be tackling together this morning. Now, listen, if you missed the message last week, the first message in this series, that message really sort of laid the foundation and set the tone for this entire series. So if you missed it, Shame on you, you dirty sinner. Right. Just, just kidding, I'm, I'm joking. But if you did miss it, I would encourage you to go back on our app or the website and catch that because you're gonna be a little bit lost if you don't catch that, that first one. Now, as always, I mentioned last week in this series, this series is a PG series. So if you're the parent of a small kid, uh, most of what we talk about today is gonna to be PG. The next two weeks will be a little bit PG-13-ish waters. If you're homeschool, maybe PG-15 so just just be, just be, <laughs> that, that was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, e, e, the, the point is, if you have small kids in here, you don't wanna have an awkward conversation in the van on the way home, uh, please exit now. We have a great preschool ministry. We have a great kids church ministry. Now would be the time for you to uh, stick them in one of those. All right, so what is love? Back to the original question. Is love the kind of the super feeling centric, hyper sexualized version that, of love that Hollywood kind of paints for us? Is love what we see in ridiculous Hallmark movies? Some of you who need to repent and meet Jesus love so much every November and December. Is love kind of a Disney picture perfect fairy tale relationship where another person flawlessly meets all of your needs and lives to satisfy your every desire as you hopelessly gaze into each other's eyes and say, You complete me, baby. <laughs> Barf, right? I tell couples that I do premarital counseling with um, all the time, hey, for, for Cheryl and I really, our toughest season of marriage was probably our first year of marriage. And I'll tell you why, it's mainly because I had this impression that after our wedding night, that her primary purpose in life once we got married was going to be to live for my happiness and to pursue my satisfaction. And do you know what was not her vision for our marriage? That, that was not her vision. And so we had conflict, man, we had conflict. And that's where I promise you, that's where some of you are right now in your marriage or in a relationship. And listen, I think it's because you probably have accepted the world's idea and definition of love instead of God's idea of love. I want you to think about even the way our culture talks about love. So we use these phrases like I fell in love or we fell in love. Listen, when is the last time you ever fell in life and that was a good thing, right? When's the last time you just tumbled down the stairs and you gotta praise Jesus? I fell down the stairs, but don't we we kind of talk about love in these terms. The Bible doesn't talk ever about falling in love. Now, the Bible describes the process of walking into love with eyes wide open, the stepping into love. The Bible talks about love as a choice, as a decision, as a commitment. But the truth of the matter is that our culture really perpetuates this different version of what love is. And God gives us an entirely different definition of love. And I think that's one reason why so many people are confused in our world today about what love is. And I want you to listen to me. I think that's why so many people are carrying around deep scarring from chasing after something that's actually a counterfeit version of what God created you to experience in this world with other people. In fact, I think that for many of us, what we call love is actually what God calls lust. To put it uh, another way and to borrow from uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, the world offers us consumer love while God calls us to covenant love. Consumer love, on the one hand, that's what our culture perpetuates and covenant love is what God calls us into. Now we use the terms consumer love and lust interchangeably this morning because I think they're really describing the same thing. So I wanna spend some time comparing and contrasting those two ideas, love versus lust. And if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to head to Matthew chapter five. That's where we'll start, bounce around a little bit today. Matthew chapter five, if you don't, that's okay, it'll be on the screens for you. And let me just set the stage. Ma- Matthew five is the Sermon on the Mount. So this is Jesus's longest sermon, the longest recorded sermon, and he just unpacks all kinds of really deep, in-depth, profound truths. And we're just gonna bite off a little bit of that sermon and digest it together this morning. So let's start chapter five, verse 27 on the screens for you. This is what Jesus says. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And as I was studying this passage this week, the thing that came to my mind, first of all, was the, were the immortal words of the great philosopher and theologian, Ron Burgundy. That escalated really quickly, right? Right? We go from love and lust to, hey, you better pluck out your eyeball and chop off your hand. Like, what is, what is all this intense language about? And I think what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, lust or consumer love is toxic, not just for your body. Listen to me. It's actually poison for your soul. See, last week we talked briefly about uh, what sex is. And the Bible describes sex as a, as a one flesh relationship that, when, when you have sex with somebody else it's not just it's not just a physical thing it's actually this this interweaving of souls this intermingling of souls it 's a very serious thing that we shouldn't take lightly and so the lie that our culture perpetuates that it's just something physical like going out and, and grabbing a drink or a hamburger is a, is a lie it goes much 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 deeper than that I heard recently about one study that did brain scans on couples who had been sexually active together before marriage and, and broke up. And the brain scans showed that the same part of their brain lit up after they were sexually active with somebody and broke up, the same part of their brain lit up as when you break a bone. Now, now why is that? It's because sex is never just physical. It goes, it goes deeper than that. It's actually spiritual. And that's why consumer love or lust is so dangerous. And I think that's why Jesus is so aggressive as he uh, describes the dangers of it. And that's also, we talked about last week, but that's also why the, the Christian sexual ethic, we saw the words of Jesus in Matthew 19. Jesus' sexual ethic is sex only inside a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. They're, they're, the only exception to that, Jesus said last week, is, is celibacy. This is, this is how God has created sex. These are the, the boundaries for sex, and it's not to limit us. it's actually for our health, for our good, so that we could flourish sexually so that we could flourish in our relationships. Now let's, let's just contrast what, what we just read in Matthew chapter five, lust, right? This idea of consumer love. Let's contrast that with godly love, or covenant love, what God would actually call us to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screens for you. This is the apostle Paul and this is what he writes. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, which is the opposite, by the way, of what our culture is is trying to teach us what, what love is. It does not insist on its own way. It's not all about me. It is not... Irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Love never ends. So I think if we we just kind of boil this contrast down between love and lust to its simplest form, here it is. Love gives while lust takes. Love gives while lust takes. Now th- think about maybe the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he what? He took your only son. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Love gives. The world's version of love, lust, actually takes because lust says, listen, I will love you as long as you satisfy my needs. As long as you're satisfying my needs, I will love you or until someone else comes along that can satisfy my needs better than you currently are. The world's version of love, lust, says, man, man, my my needs are more important than this relationship. And so when my needs aren't getting met, I'm going to find another relationship. But love. Love, covenant love, on the other hand says, no listen, I, this is not about me, I'm here to serve you, I'm here to love you, I'm here for your good, I'm in it for you. And come hell or high water, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. Love says the relationship is more important than my needs. I love the way that St. Thomas Aquinas put it all those years ago, this will be on the screens for you, I think it's a great definition. Love is to will the good of the other. Love is to will the good of the other. It's not about me. It's about, it's about the other person that I'm with in a covenant marriage. Listen, one, one, one type of love that we've just been talking about, this, this idea of lust or consumer love, that type of love enslaves because the reality is in that type of love, in that version of love, you always have to perform, right? Because if you don't perform sexually or in some other way to your partner's standard, your consumer partner will eventually just kind of move on if you fail to meet their selfish expectations and their self-focused standard of what you ought to be providing them in the relationship. But in covenant love, and the kind of love that God calls us to as followers of Jesus, there's freedom to grow in a relationship, there's freedom to learn about love, there's freedom to learn about one another, there's freedom to communicate even about our deepest insecurities. And the safety of a covenant marriage. And listen, this makes all the difference in the world in relationships. One version of love enslaves, the other version of love sets us free. So, if you're a list person, let me just give you a quick compare and contrast list of what love and lust is. Number one, this is me on the screen for you love gives while lust takes. See, lo- love gives. We just read about that in John three sixteen. Love really is others-focused. It's not self-focused, but lust always wants to take. It's always about me. It's self-focused. It's never others-focused. Love also sacrifices, and lust, on the other hand, demands. So what that means for me in terms of being a husband to my wife and a father to my kids, that means that after a long day of work, when I'm exhausted, man, and I've just been wrung out in ministry needs and stresses and all kinds of things, when I pull into my driveway, I'm praying as I get out of the car, God, I am exhausted. The last thing I want to do is go talk and engage. I just want to go to my room and disengage and not talk to anybody but what love does is it sacrifices. So instead of going into the home and expecting my wife to serve me and care for me, I'm going in with the mindset, how can I serve my wife? How, how, can, I, how can I love her well? How can, I, how can I muster up the energy to get on the floor and wrestle with my kids when I don't feel like I have anything left? But the world's version of love or lust demands. It's all about me. Why isn't dinner ready? I'm, do you know how exhausted I am? Do you know how hard I work? Why? What, what, why aren't you serving me? This, is, this should be all about me. No, love sacrifices while lust demands. Love also is patient while lust is impatient. That means we, we learn to go at the pace of the other person. We're patient with them. We learn with them. We're not, we're not demanding. We're not impatient. And listen, if you're here, you're young, maybe middle school, high school, college, young, single, let me just say this. Making love is not love. Making love is not love. And so if you're in a relationship where your boyfriend or your girlfriend is pressuring you to have sex before you step into that covenant of marriage, let me just say, run as far and as fast as you can because that is not love. Love is patient. Love is willing to wait to that special moment just like God designed for it. Lust, the world's vision of love is impatient. It's demanding. It's I want it now. These are my needs. We need to test drive this to make sure we're compatible. That's horse manure. The Bible says real love is patient. Love also is commitment based, while lust is feelings based. And this is probably maybe one of the biggest lies our culture perpetuates, right? It's like, hey man, real love is this kind of lovey-dovey, warm and fuzzy feeling like a Disney movie. And if that ever goes, you need to move on because the love is not there. It's feelings based. It's not commitment based, but the Bible says love is, no, 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 it's a covenant, it's a commitment that you make. When it comes to love, commitment is the root, feelings are the fruit, let me say that again. When it comes to love, commitment is the root, feelings are the fruit, and the, fr- and the feelings come and they go throughout life, they come and they go. The commitment is what defines real love. So let me just say, believer, make sure that you're chasing God's definition of love. Please do not settle for the world's cheap imitation. So here, if you're a note taker, here's truth number one this morning. Number one on the screens for you. Love's greatest counterfeit is lust. Love's greatest counterfeit is lust. I want you to listen to me. One brings life, the other brings death. So believer, please choose wisely. Have discernment. The danger in this is they both kind of, on the surface, they kind of look the same. They both, kind of, they both kind of smell the same. They look similar enough, but one is poison that will kill you. The other one will actually give you life. Please do not buy what culture is selling us. Pursue God's vision of what love is. Now, I wanna just for a moment shift gears here. here here's why. I don't think you will ever be capable of giving or receiving this kind of love without understanding your true identity your true identity. Now let me say something that may be controversial. I don't think we have a sexual crisis in our culture so much as we have an identity crisis in our culture. Listen to me, love will never make sense until you settle your core identity. We talked about this last week in Genesis chapter one and two. The Bible tells us that we as human beings are made in the image of God. We call this the doctrine of Imago Dei. We are set apart from the animals. We, We are not animals. We are image bearers of the creator of this universe, which means we, unlike the animals, do not have to be driven by our instincts and our passions. We actually get to make moral choices and decisions about how we live our lives and who we have sex with and when we have sex with them and how we view marriage and so much more. It is a beautiful revelation, this idea of Imago Dei. We are made in the image of God. We are not our passions. I want you to listen to me. Do not believe the cultural lie that you are your sexuality or that your sexual inclinations define you. They do not. In fact, I want you to say this with me this morning. I am not my sexual desires. I am not my sexual desires. You are not. As one same-sex attracted believer said, I am not who I want to have sex with. I'm not who I want to have sex with. I would just say, yes and amen. That is not who you are. That is not your identity. So that's truth number two this morning on the screens for you. You are not your sexual desires. You are not. And I think one reason we're all kind of walking on eggshells in our culture when it comes to sexuality and sexual lifestyles and choices is because we have made sexuality our primary identity. And so if someone questions any of my decisions in the bedroom, I take that as a personal assault on my very personhood, which, listen to me, is madness. Never before in human history have we married our identity with sexuality in such an absurd and harmful way. Sex is something that we do, it is not who we are. And this is especially true for those of us who follow Jesus. Jesus himself really kind of blows this idea out of the water of, of our identity being tied to our sexuality. Think about the life of Jesus just for a moment. The most complete, perfect man, human being who has ever walked a planet, never had sex, never had a girlfriend, was never married. And the world tells us that we can't live a fulfilled life without sex. And Jesus proved that to be a lie. He lived the most beautiful, complete life ever recorded in human history. How is that possible? I believe it's because he understood that his identity was not wrapped up in his sexual desires. So listen to me. When Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, and we talked about last week, we're all sexual sinners. We're all broken. It doesn't matter if you're heterosexual. It doesn't matter if you're same-sex attracted. it, It doesn't matter. He calls us all to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow him. And so when Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and to follow him, listen to me, that is a path he has already walked himself. The Bible says he was tempted in every way, just like we are, but Hebrews says he was without sin. I want you to hear me, hear me say this clearly. Your sexual desires do not define who you are. That is not who you are especially if you're a follower of Jesus. I want you to listen to the words of Paul. This will be on the screens for you. This is Ephesians chapter five. This is what Paul writes. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up. Here's the idea again of love being sacrificial, not self-serving. It's not about me, not about my desires, not about my sexual inclinations, not about what I want. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Here's where it gets a little tricky, verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity. That word impurity in the Greek just means the mixing of two things. So it's like the idea of having some some clean water and mixing a little bit of poison in it. So for us, it'd be kind of like people who want to have one foot in the world and one foot with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. This idea of impurity, being mixed. I like to dabble with the world stuff, but I kind of like the Jesus thing too. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is uh, uh, being an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And listen, our culture is trying to deceive us at an alarming rate with empty words when it comes to identity issues, gender issues, relationships, sex, all of that. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, this is the key to our identity. Paul says sexual immorality and impurity should not even be named among those who follow Jesus. In fact, we looked at last week, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, hey, flee from sexual immorality. Don't dabble with it, don't toy with it, don't experiment with it. He says, run from it, run away from it. Now, this word sexual immorality that Paul keeps referring to is the Greek word we talked about last week, porneia. Porneia is this, Greek word is kind of a catch-all term that describes all sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. And Paul says, you run from it. If you're a believer, you don't, you don't, you don't just walk away from it, you sprint away from it. That is the sexual ethic of Jesus. So that means, among other things, premarital sex. Our world tells us, hey, that, that's no, no big deal. You gotta test drive the car, right, before you, before you buy it. That's not the sexual ethic of Jesus or his kingdom. So that's premarital sex, that's porn addiction, that's heterosexual marital affairs, that's homosexual sex, that's, that, that's cohabitation with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you get married. It encompasses all of that. Porneia encompasses all of that. And Paul says, if you love Jesus, run from that stuff. Sprint away from it. Now, for most of us, we've heard that part of the message. If you grew up in church, all the the list of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But what you may not have heard, and Paul gives us in this passage is the why. So he doesn't just say, run away from this, don't do this, don't do that. He actually gives us the why behind the what. Look at verse eight again. He says, for at one time, listen, you were darkness. We're talking about identity issues now, right? for at one time you were darkness. But now, praise God for the but now's in scripture. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul says, listen, your identity at one time was darkness. That is who you were. But now, since you begin to follow Jesus, he says, now your identity is no longer darkness, it is now light. So walk as children of light. Walk in your new identity, believer. Now notice he didn't say, he did not say you once walked in darkness, he said you once were darkness. That's an important distinction. He's saying at one point in time in your life, that was your identity. Sexual immorality was actually who you were at the core, but no more. For followers of Jesus, now you are light. And he doesn't just say now you walk in the light, he says now you are light. This is now who you are. This is your new identity in Jesus. He puts it this way in Second Corinthians chapter five on the screens for you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. A new creation with new desires and a new direction in life. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. That old me, that old Chris Dillon who loved his sin, is now dead. He was crucified with Jesus on the cross. Behold, the new has come. Now here's what Paul is saying, and if you're writing down notes, here's truth number three on the screen for you as well. Believer, you turn from sexual immorality because Jesus gave you a new identity. You turn from sexual immorality because Jesus has given you a new identity. Now here's how, how Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, put it in 1 Peter chapter 2, also on the screen for you. Peter writes on the issue of identity, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of what? Darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, believer, you are not your sexual desires. You are a chosen race. Christian, you need to understand, God chose you. He set you apart before the foundations of the world. And now you are a holy nation, his prized possession. You are a people of light, no longer a people of darkness. That is who you are. In a sense, this is what Peter is saying to the believer. This is our last point, truth number four. Believer, be who you already are. Learn to be who you already are. Stop living in an identity that doesn't belong to you anymore, believer. Now, does that mean that the Christian at the moment that they begin to follow Jesus never struggles with sin again? Is that what that means? No, I mean, I, I hope not, because I'm in trouble if it is. But here's what, that does, here's, here's what that does mean. Now as believers, listen to me, now we fight sin instead of embracing and celebrating sin. And that is a massive difference. Now we fight sin instead of embracing our own sin or the sin of other people and even celebrating it. I want you to listen to Jesus' best friend in 1 John chapter 3 on the screens for you. This is what John writes. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, listen, John didn't say that Christians will never sin again. He does say that Christians cannot live in a continual pattern of sin forever and ever and be happy. Now, here's here's what changed for me. When I I gave my life to Jesus as a college student, 20 20 year old uh, young man, here's what changed for me I went from loving my sin to hating my sin overnight. I went from celebrating my sin and high-fiving my buddies over it to absolutely hating my sin. I went from celebrating my sin to fighting my sin like it was my worst enemy because it is. Now, I, w- I want you to hear me say this clearly. I, I still, uh, 20 years post-conversion, I still struggle with sin on a daily basis. So I don't want you to have some kind of false you know, image of who I am and how, how holy I, I I, just like you, I struggle with sin on a daily basis, but here's the difference. I don't want you to listen to me, this is important. Here's the difference, now I fight. Now I, now I fight, I'm in the fight. Because now when I sin, the Holy Spirit gets all up in my business. And he convicts me and he pushes me to repent and to turn from that stuff. See, I can't, I can't enjoy my sin anymore. Before I could, I could engage in it and indulge in it and love it and celebrate it. And now listen to me, I want you to hear me say this. I hate my sin. I detest the sin that still lives in my flesh. I hate it because I know it's not pleasing to my Savior and I know it's not good for my wife and I know it's bad for my kids and I know it's not good for the church family that I lead and I love. I hate my sin. I detest it. And so now I I fight, I fight it. Now here's why I think that happens. Listen, when I walk in a continual pattern of sin now, listen, I'm miserable because I I am living against my true identity now. When I choose to walk in sin, I am now living against my true core new identity that Jesus gave me when I began to follow him. It's not me anymore. That's why it doesn't feel right anymore. It once felt right, it felt good, it felt fun, and now it just, it makes me miserable. I can't sleep at night. I I hate it because Jesus has given me a new identity. He's made me a new creation. That's not who I am anymore. I remember a few years ago, one of my best friends is a big uh, Clemson football fan, and um, I'm still trying to share Jesus with him, and um, get him to follow the Lord, but he, like, he likes Clemson, and if you guys have been around here a little while, you know I'm a, I'm a big Alabama fan. And uh, he invited me to a, a game in Death Valley one time, so he's like, hey, call, called me up, hey Chris, I got some extra tickets to the game this weekend, you wanna go? And I was like, heck yeah, man, I'd love to check out Death Valley, never been, want to see a football game there, and he's like, here, here's the only catch, you gotta be a Clemson fan for the day. So I got the gear, I got everything, and I'm like, hey, easy deal. I'm, I'm happy to do that. So I, I put on my, my purple Clemson shirt with a big orange thing and I had my pom-poms and we got in the stadium and I was, I was doing all the chants like T-I-G-E-R-S, Tigers, Tigers, Tigers. Man, I was, the whole thing, man. I was, I was all in. I was Clemson and I was pulling for him. And I just want to tell you the whole time I felt like a complete fraud. I felt like a complete fraud, right? Because I was pretending to be something that I really wasn't. That was not my identity. I was going against my identity as an Alabama football fan and it didn't feel right. And I think that's what John is saying in First John chapter three right there. When we as believers, as new creations with a new identity kind of begin to walk in patterns of sin, we are going against our true identity and it's not gonna feel right anymore. And it shouldn't feel right anymore if we have the Holy Spirit living in us and guiding us and directing us and convicting us. And so here's the deal, I'm just gonna be really gut level honest with you this morning because I care about you. If you're here, if you're watching online, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you are continually living in a pattern of sin, embracing sin and celebrating sin instead of fighting it, I just wanna say to you in love this morning, you probably aren't a Christian. If you can live in a pattern of sin, unchecked sin for weeks and months and years at a time and the Holy Spirit never gets up in your face and wrecks your heart and your life in the best way possible, I just wanna say you probably have never met Jesus. You might know a lot of facts about Jesus, you might have grown up in church, you might be religious, you may have some Bible verse memorizes, but if you have not been revolutionized at the heart level, at the identity level, you need to know Jesus today. Now that's the bad news, here's the good news. Jesus welcomes sexual sinners, which by the way, is is all of us, me included. Jesus welcomes sexual sinners who repent and turn from their sin and turn to him into his kingdom every single day. So I want you to know if that's you, you don't know Jesus, maybe you're a religious person, but you've never had your life wrecked by Jesus, you can live in sin with no repentance for long periods of time. So I want you to know he invites you into his very countercultural kingdom invites you today into his life-giving, life-transforming kingdom, and the truth of the matter is this. Listen, your life and your relationships are only ever going to thrive and flourish when you align your life and your sexuality and your relationship with his design for your life. So friend, let me just ask you, if that's you, won't you stop running from the only one who can give you what you're actually chasing? Won't you stop running from the only one who can satisfy the stuff that you're chasing and all these other sexual experiences or relationships, Don't you stop running from him. Once you run to him, the answer to your search has always and will only ever be Jesus. He is the answer to what you're looking for, I'm telling you. And the truth of the matter is, I know there are others of you here who are Christians. Maybe you're watching online, maybe you're in the room and you're dabbling in sexual sin. Whether it's premarital sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, whether it's a secret porn addiction, whether it's giving in to same-sex attraction, whether it's cheating on your spouse or flirting with somebody at work and you're just kind of on that brink of an affair. You're cohabitating before marriage with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And listen to me, if you're a Christian, this is what I know to be true about you right now. You are miserable. You are, you're miserable because the Holy Spirit will never let you thrive in your sin long-term. Listen to me, because that is not who you are anymore. That is not who you are anymore. And so if you're dabbling in sin, you're going against your very core identity. And so the call for you today, if that's who, where you are, believer, and you're dabbling in sexual sin, the call for you this morning is to come home. To run home to Jesus, he will embrace you. Listen, that, is, that lifestyle is not who you are anymore. I love this quote from St. Catherine, an early century believer. I'll put it on the screens for you. This is what she writes. When we are who we are called to be, we will set the world ablaze so wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you're dealing with, I want you to know Jesus offers you grace and freedom today. So friend, let's set the world ablaze with a new kingdom ethic, with a new identity, with a better vision for what sexuality is, for our good, for the good of others around us, and ultimately for the glory of our King. Let's pray and then we're gonna sing to King Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we are grateful that the truth of your word stands Stands like a compass throughout the time and quarter of history. Even though culture shifts standards and shifts morals about every generation, your truth stands like the North Star to guide our lives. It never shifts. It never changes. And it is always for our good. It's never to hold us back, it's to set us free. And so we thank you for the truth of your word when it's easy to hear and apply. We thank you for your word when it's really hard to hear and apply. God, I just pray that you would help us to turn from sin. God, we are all sexual sinners in one form or another. God, would you teach us to hate our sin not to love it not to celebrate it to as paul said to flee from it to run from it to sprint away from it to the new kingdom ethic of jesus christ god would you teach us you've given us a new identity we're not darkness anymore we're light now teach us to walk as children of light for our good and for your glory and we pray all these things in the beautiful and the mighty name of your son and our savior jesus christ amen church let's stand and let's worship